Welcome to the Legislate podcast, a place to learn about the latest insights and trends in property, technology, business building, and contract drafting. Today, I'm excited to have Sarah from Alt Street Property on the show. Alt Street Property Group is a property investment and development company which revives tired, unloved houses and turns them into modern accommodation for young families as a long-term solution. Sarah, welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself and your company? So thanks for having me on board, Charles. Lovely to, to be here on the podcast. I am Sarah Watt. I have or am running Alt Street Property with my husband and have been a property investor for over a decade. We started in Australia, which is where we're from. You could probably tell that the accent isn't as British as you'd probably find. So we started in Oz and we came to the UK in 2016. And that's where we established Alt Street Property and really took it more of a business slant to, to what we do now. So before then, we were always single let landlords, always done it on the side of our day job. So I'm an accountant by trade and my husband is in a big four lift company. I'm as a director there. And so property for us was always something we did on the side. And it wasn't until we came here and I went on my first round of mat leave that we actually started to take it more seriously and build a business and brand and all that kind of stuff. And it's a constantly evolving piece. But then we've gone from single let landlord, um, a couple of flips here and there when we were working in Melbourne, Australia. And then we came over here and really started to branch out into co-living HMOs, which is what we have at the moment. So we're just about to finish our fourth co-living HMO all in the same area and that's where our direction is heading at the moment. Very exciting and so if I may why did you make that big move to the UK was it for property? It was for day jobs at the time so I was the reason why we came over but the reason why we stayed is for Andrew's job so it was literally because work brought us here and we decided everywhere we went we worked in Sydney, Melbourne, and now based in Milton Keynes in the UK, we've always done property on the side of wherever we were in, in the world. So we've sold up our Melbourne portfolio. We weren't going to, we, we didn't have any family back there. We didn't have any ties to Melbourne. So we sold up. So effectively flipped the property portfolio we had there and then came to the UK and started from scratch. So when we first started, I didn't know anything about chains. I didn't know anything about how the legal process worked. I just assumed it was the same and by gosh, that was so not the case. So when we first started buying, we thought it'd be really straightforward and it's not. And I had to re-educate or we had to re-educate ourselves as to what chains were and all that kind of stuff, because it's just not the same. I guess legislation wise, Australia is very much or very similar to Scotland and the rules associated with that. If you sign, that's it. There is no going back and there is no a lot of falling out of bed and all that kind of stuff. That's the kind of things that we needed to re-educate ourselves with, I guess, when we came. What are the key differences or similarities between running a portfolio of properties in Australia and in the UK? We've only very recently started to self-manage. Before that, we always used an agent and that was purely because we just didn't not have the time to manage on the side of our day jobs. Our self-management is not really all that big. Most of the time you give it to an agent. That's just the given thing to do. Our Australian portfolio that we still have in Sydney is very much still with the same agent that we've had from day one. She's absolutely brilliant and we can actually do refurbs from the other side of the world because of that relationship that we have. I think in the UK, we started off with a high street agent because that's the only thing we knew at the time is just give it to an agent and be dealt with it and have that arm's length transaction between you and the tenant. It's only recently that we've started to re-educate ourselves in the landlord or the landlording sector in order 
for us to have the confidence to A, pull it off, but also have the time to pull it off. There's a lot of legislation involved and a lot of changes that are happening. And if you're not kept abreast of that, it's very easy for you to be caught out. There's so much paperwork you need to serve to tenants these days. And I think I was very nervous. If I didn't do the right thing, I could be caught out. And that's why we started off with an agent. And it's only, it's taken us probably about five years to actually get to the point where we're confident enough to self-manage ourselves now. That makes a lot of sense. And that's one thing at Legislate we see is governments will provide guidance and new templates, but there are often contradictions or things aren't very clear, especially if you haven't done it in practice for a long time, it, it can be difficult to know or to be 100% sure. So I guess also my next question is, what's been your favourite moment so far? Property-wise, I guess it's actually our recent co-living events that we started to put on so this is actually quite new for us we've got to the point where our portfolio is now big enough to get those economies of scale i think when you just got one hmo it's just really hard to keep that cohesive approach whereas now we've got 16 about to launch another five so that's 21 of them and so the best part of the job is actually seeing them all come together and you think oh why would you want to throw all your tenants together and it's it doesn't really make any sense why you would do that for me at some point, it just goes beyond the money. And I'm not a social landlord. I'm not, I'm not taking care of disabled tenants or anything like that. It's more what I'm trying to create as a community. And that's what I want to create with my tenants. And it really helps that they can all walk to each other's houses. But what I want is to create that co-living environment where you're not just moving into a house with four magnolia walls. That was... It's dead, this is what you used to do in the 1990s type thing. What I'm trying to do is really create that community feel. And by putting on the events that we do, we had an end of summer barbecue. We're about to have our Christmas party in a couple of weeks and really creating and fostering that kind of environment to the point where I don't really get many voids because tenants don't really leave me that often. So that's probably the, the best part of, of what I do. It go beyond, it's not just about profit. For me, it's about knowing that my tenants are safe, that they're happy, that they have accommodation and we're raising the standards across the board to know that this is the new standard of accommodation that people expect these days. And I think that's the most rewarding thing I get out of landlording. And quite a novel approach, I think. Does that mean that you also target your properties so that they are close to each other? At this stage, yes, only because the opportunities have just come our way. And so it, it's very helpful. I don't think you necessarily need to have them close together in order to do what we do. You can't have them scattered around. It doesn't really matter. But for us, it's just about how they communicate with each other and how they create that community feel. So it's definitely helpful, I think, but it's also one of those things, if you have too many in the same area, that's also not a good thing. So from a diversification or investing point of view, we would want to look a little bit outside that so that we're not all concentrated in the same area and we don't have too many eggs in one basket, really. Of course. And what would you wish you'd known for getting into property? I think the biggest hurdle I had to overcome was my issue with debt. I guess when I was raised very typically middle class, debt is bad, pay off your mortgage as soon as possible, credit cards are bad, every, every lot of debt is bad. And it wasn't until I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad at the age of 23 that it made me want to throw all my accounting textbooks out the window because it was just completely irrelevant. And I think the attitudes towards debt or the classification of debt, either good or bad, it can be used to leverage and it can be used to actually spiral you down into all sorts of 
bad things. But the way you use debt, um, I think, is the biggest thing I wish I had learnt earlier on and how you can, how leverage is so important and how the rich actually use debt to their advantage. I think that's probably the biggest mindset shift I've had. And then ever since then, it's where can I get more? So that's what I wish I had known um, a little bit earlier. Obviously, I went through uni, I went through the university type thing, did my postgrad, all that kind of stuff. They don't teach you any of this in school. They don't teach you any of this at university. And so that I think I wish I had known or probably even got to the self-education part with books and things a lot earlier than what I had done. So I wish I had exposure to that earlier on. So does that mean you follow a buy, refurbish, rent, refinance type strategy with your properties? Yeah, we always try and hold. We very rarely sold. The only time we did sell um, was for Melbourne and that was for personal circumstance, but also because it was the right time to sell at the time. The market was at an all-time high and we wanted to do a flip. So that was the only reason why we did actually sell. Everything else we've held from day one. So my first property, Andrew's first property, we've held since 2008, since 2011 and just kept it and just watched that absolutely skyrocket or at least it does in Sydney anyway. <laughs> um, Sydney's a very capital growth market. Definitely try to refinance where we can but now I think our attention is more so on our UK portfolio and doing the same. So we don't intend to sell, we just intend to accumulate unless something you know drastically went wrong that we had to. That's the only reason why we would. Otherwise the way I see property it's it's I wouldn't say for life, but for a very long time. It's something I want to pass down to uh, my children. And at the same time, if you can have an income from that on the side, that's the bonus. But for me, I'm a long-term hold type of person. And then using refinancing to make sure that you can continue to grow as well. That makes sense. So I guess what's the, the vision for Old Street Property for the next 10 years? Oh, the reason why I say that is because if you had told me I would be in the UK five years ago, I would have laughed at you. So I've got no idea what 10 years is going to look like. I would love to say another 10 properties or quite like another maybe three mil worth of properties, something like that. I would love to do developments later down the track, I think, and just continue to grow. So if we continue at the same trajectory as what we're on, we normally do about one project to two projects a year. I'd love to do that, but faster. So either when I mean faster, it's either small blocks of flat or small developments, things like that. That's the next stage for us in what we're doing. I also do love HMOs. I've grown to love HMOs. Didn't even know what a HMO was in 2019. So there you go. Just goes to show how much you can evolve over time. But I think that's probably where we want to look to is bigger, better, faster. What we've already got, we've already got that knowledge, but it's, now it's about applying that and seeing how we can do that. Yeah, bigger, better, faster in the next 10 years to hopefully get us to where we want to be. That's very exciting and, and best of luck with the execution. Thanks. So you've now got a fairly big portfolio and also um, in two different you know, places quite far from each other. What are the key contracts that you interact with the most frequently? I would probably say now that we self-manage, it's got to be ASTs. Uh, and that's just because we have the HMO portfolio. I wouldn't say they turn over all the time, but because we've got so many tenants, it's the one contract we would use regularly. ASTs, checking ASTs, making sure that we really refined the special clauses we put in the ASTs. And it's also the changes of legislation. 
So it's happening all the time. As much as you say, they can't throw anything else at landlords. Oh my God, yes, they can. <laughs> and making sure that your clauses get you out of a pickle if ever you are in one. So that's probably the contracts I use most of the time. Other than that, it's just whenever we buy. So it's your normal standard conveyancing stuff that all goes through. That's all solicitor speak. So to be honest, I don't really know much about that. They just go, sign here. Okay. So they're the main two when we buy. But from an everyday kind of perspective, it's got to be the ASTs that we have with our tenants and with your asts are there any common objections or, or key questions which keep coming up from tenants that's a good one we do have special clauses in ours we have a couple of single lets uk portfolio and they are pet friendly so sometimes it's about the pets the pet deposit that's now changed because of legislation making sure that they're aware that when they want to move their cat in that they have, they sign an addendum saying, yes, I will repair any damage that there is. And the landlord is not going to be held responsible for the welfare of my pet. And all the kind of clauses that you think are no brainers, I put in my contracts. I'm all for pets. I have a dog of my own, but I don't want to be held responsible if something happened to the pet or the pet died. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to sue my landlord or anything like that. So it's making sure that your backside is covered. I think that's more from the single let side. From the co-living and HMO side, it's more about future-proofing yourself against potential council tax banding. Are all my bills included? It's a very common question that we have. Hopefully, so far, fingers crossed, we don't. But you never know. It is coming. And that's the next big thing in the HMO space, I think, is that council tax banding because it's so sporadic at the moment. The other kind of clauses that we have, I guess that's the main one. I put all the normal other things, like what is included. And we also make sure that we have a very stringent set of house rules that is also attached to the AST. Make sure you read them because the list is three pages long now. There's so many things that have happened to us. We started off very like a very simple kind of thing. We thought let's not complicate this. I like to keep things simple. And as things have happened to us over the last two years that we've been in the HMO co-living space, we've had to put more and more things in as we get questions asked, especially around guest policies, things like that. Can you invite my friend over? And I'm like, there's friend and then they're staying for more than three days a week so things like that that i think we've had to adapt over time so yeah. making sure that our contracts are up to date is 100 percent key for us yeah, that's quite interesting and i think one thing in properties is landlords if they were concerned it's more about the damage to the property as opposed to what you mentioned around the welfare of the animals i thought that was quite a interesting angle and obviously from an ethical perspective much better so I'm conscious that I've already taken a lot of your time. So I'm going to ask you a closing question, which we ask all our guests. So if you're being sent a contract to sign today, what would impress you? I think before any contract is drafted, you need to have that conversation as to what on earth am I signing? What I would like is, yes, there's lots of legal speak. And yes, there's lots of legal language. What I want to see is that in layman's terms. What does that actually mean for me? And knowing that all the questions, I have a lot of questions, but all the questions that I had is laid out in a separate document that says, this means this, and that's it. And that's what you're signing. I kind of skim read. I don't read every single last dot, cross your eyes, dot T's in, in a you know 64 page document. But what I would like is, these are my main concerns. These are the questions I have. Have you addressed it in the legal speak that you have? If you have and I can see it and it makes sense to me, then I will sign the document. So for me, it's laying it out in clear, simple language is really key for me. So if it's something I don't understand, I will go back and ask and it'll just delay the whole process. To make it really nice and easy, 
make sure there's a Q&A type document that goes alongside it or make sure it's really clear if this happens and that this is the outcome. I think is really key and not many lawyers can do it really well. I think that they often get so tied up in all sorts of various language that you think, I don't really understand what on earth this means and I have to go back and ask for a phone call to break that down. So I think, yeah, keeping it simple is the best bit. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice and not to plug legislate, but that's one thing that we try to do is on the one hand, simplify the language so that there's no legalese and that everything is easy to understand and the classical contract view, but we also offer a Q&A view of the same contract so that people who aren't familiar with contracts can still understand the key terms. And we're also working on a um, new visual representation of contracts to also quickly surface the, the key and rights and obligations of both the landlord and the tenant so that everyone understands the key terms without needing to speak to a lawyer. Thank you very much, Sarah, for being on the show. It's a very interesting conversation and um, best of luck growing your business over the next 10 years. I'm sure you'll succeed. Yeah, best of luck. Thank you so much for having me, Charles. Thank you, Sarah.